some, some passages of Scripture are, are so full of deep truths that we can sometimes almost feel overwhelmed when we, when we meditate on them, when we swim in them. Um, this passage is one of those, I think. Sometimes when, we, when people read the Bible, or sometimes when they read just certain passages of the Bible, the things that stand out to them are God's laws. Sometimes when we read through the Bible, the things that really stand out, that pop out to us, are, are God's laws. Sometimes it's the wrath of God being poured out on sinners. Sometimes it's the miraculous signs that will stand out. As people read through the scriptures, the, those miraculous signs that, that accompany God's revelation of himself to his people. And really the purpose of those signs are to authenticate the message. But one of the things that we ought to see, one of the things that we should be looking for when we read through the scriptures are the promises of God. God's promises should stand out to us as his people. The Apostle Peter even calls them, he says that they are his precious and very great promises. And so when you read through the scriptures, any portion of the scriptures, whether it is the law, whether it is the prophets or the the poetry, whether it is the New Testament, the gospels or the epistles, when you read through the scriptures, do you notice his precious and very great promises? Do those promises stand out to you, you personally? Do they stand out to you when you read the scriptures? The promises of God are all over the scripture. They are big promises and small promises. They're promises that are fulfilled in the immediate and promises that are fulfilled over the centuries. There are even promises that, are, that we are waiting for that we are waiting still for God to fulfill. There are promises that are made to certain individuals that are not fulfilled until many years after that person's death. And then there are the greatest promises. There's even the one promise that trumps them all. The promise that began in the garden, the promise of of a victorious offspring. I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall crush. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The promise is that Jesus Christ will crush the head of the serpent. This is a promise that continues throughout the Old Testament. These will probably probably seem familiar. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. That's a promise. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's the the promise of God, right? And as Christians, we understand, as as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. 
All the promises of God find their completion, their fulfillment in Christ. So if I asked you the question, what is the greatest promise of God? The right answer is Jesus Christ. Now there are different ways to articulate that, right? We could quote, for example, Romans chapter 8 verse 32, which says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? John Piper calls that the greatest promise of God. And he says, some words penetrate so deeply into your soul that they change the way you think about everything. And the change is full of hope. That's why that I would say the Apostle Paul did for me when I was awakened to the all-encompassing logic of heaven in Romans 8.32. He says, I was 23 years old, and when I saw this verse as I had never seen it before, God implanted it so firmly in my soul that it became a lifelong living agent of practical, hope-giving, life-altering power. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Or we could look at, when we define the greatest promise, we could look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. James Montgomery Boyce, who is a pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, he said, we come now to what is perhaps the greatest promise in the entire Bible. And it is great because it includes all of the other promises in itself. Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The greatest promise of God is Christ. There are really a multitude of ways to say that. To say that Jesus is the greatest promise of God. So Jesus was asked a similar question in Matthew chapter 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. And so using that pattern, we could ask the question this way. What is the greatest promise of God? How about, how about Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 to 23? But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Here's the promise. For he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the second is like it, and I will ask of the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So yes, I just said that the the second greatest promise of God is like the first, and it is the promise of the Holy Spirit. These two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, excuse me, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and the two greatest promises, I will send my son, and I will send another helper. They shouldn't be separated. So take a look at John 14. We're going to look at really just verses 15, 16, and 17 this morning. Um, 
But I want to read verses 12 through 17. John 14, verses 12 to 17 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And you've got to read verse 18 too. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Let's just stop and pray again. Father, help us to believe this promise. The promise that that Jesus made here that he will not leave us as orphans. The promise that he will ask of the Father who will send another helper. The promise of the Holy Spirit. Lord, remind us that you have said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and you meant it. Help us to believe, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. It might seem... Um, odd. It might seem odd that in a passage of Scripture, a passage made up uh, not of narrative necessarily, but of the, of the teachings of Jesus Christ, um, it really a passage that is just filled with promises, promises that he makes over and over and over. He just keeps making promises in these verses. Promises that are given, really, in order to comfort Jesus' disciples. It might seem odd that we also run into the word, if, so many times in the first 15 verses of this chapter. If. I think it's actually five times. In literature, um, the word if introduces a conditional clause. That means there are conditions to what he is about to say. There are conditions to the promises. Now, the promises of God are full, complete, and trustworthy, but they're not necessarily universal, right? There are conditions for realizing the blessings of God. So the first two ifs are in verses 2 and 3, and they direct, they're directly connected to his command or his plea or his encouragement, believe in God, believe also in me. Just, just look at this, verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, or would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also." That follows directly from, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus is going to prepare a place for those who have believed in him. And he is going to return to take his own, to be with him. And so without belief, without faith, there's no promise of spending an eternity with Christ. In fact, we know from other passages that for the faithless, It's going to be just the opposite. It will be a a Christless eternity of drinking of the cup of the wrath of God. Now, likewise, the third if in verse 7, it connects the followers of Jesus Christ directly to the Father through their faith and belief. 
So he says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know me or know him and have seen him. And that's as we saw last week, as we keep moving here, the fourth if is in verse 14. And the condition to the promise is you have to ask. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, be sure that you understand this. These ifs don't make our salvation any less certain. In fact, these really stand as as proofs or even certainties that our Lord will do the things if the conditions are met. We must believe in God. We must put our trust and our faith in Christ. We must pray to Him and He will answer, He says. So in one sense, this is kind of simple cause and effect. The difficult part to understand is when God shows mercy. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. We could reword that, right? If you eat of this, you will surely die. The wages of sin is death. If you commit sin, you will surely die. Where's There's mercy there. There was mercy from the beginning. Praise God for their mercy. That's the part that's hard to understand. But on the other hand, it's not cause and effect at all because it is God who gives faith. It is God who justifies. So in other words, there are conditions and they are met by God. He calls us to obey. And so today's if statement also contains a condition, but I think it's a condition that we sometimes interpret backwards in our minds. So we're going to pick it up here in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, the law tells us, let me give you a few examples. In Exodus chapter 19, Verses 5 to 8, the law says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So the law tells us that if we keep his commandments, we will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, or Israel would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And yet we sometimes take statements like that, and we mix in statements like verse 15 here, and we get it backwards and confused in our minds. But it's not God's law that's backwards. It's us. We interpret this backwards. So the legalist would say, the Pharisee would say, if I keep the law, I will earn God's favor. And then he adds layers of laws onto God's law as a way of working for his salvation. But the repentant lawbreaker says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God's response to that prayer is this. In this is love. Not that we have loved God but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, we love because he first loved us and sent his son to pay for our sin. You have to remember that when you get to verse 15. We love because he first loved us. 
and sent his son to pay for our sin, thereby, thereby fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. And if we are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, it's because Jesus kept the law. And this flips around the greatest commandments, right? We can only love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves because Christ first loved us. That's what I mean by that. This is worship flowing out of a heart of gratitude for his mercy and his grace and his love. And love here, love is the stress in these verses in John 14. In fact, really throughout at least the first part of this chapter, um, the word love is used eight times between verses 15 and verse 24. And the emphasis throughout all of this is the love of the Father for his children. I will not leave you as orphans, verse 18, Jesus says. All of this is about his concern to not leave us alone. So we believe in him, verse 1. We know him, verse 7. We believe in him again, verses 11 and 12. We depend on him, verses 13 and 14. And to know him is to love him. And to love him is to demonstrate that love by keeping his commandments. This is our duty as believers and as disciples of Jesus Christ. So our duty as disciples is verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now there are... There are two obvious reasons for Christ to make this statement right here, right in the middle of John 14. He is about to promise another helper in the very next verse. We'll get to that in a minute. But we have to remember one of the reasons that he um, gives this, makes this statement, verse 15, right here in the middle of this, is we have to remember who he's talking to. Specifically, he's speaking to the eleven. He's speaking to men who will go on to become apostles. He's speaking to those who will be specifically commissioned, sent ones. They will be his specific representatives, heralding, preaching the good news to the ends of the earth. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says to these men, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you, guys... You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. So in light of this, we can see that he is, he is pleading with them. He is encouraging them to stay the course. These men love him. They do love him. And remember, G- Judas, Judas has just been set out to betray him. Peter, right at the end of chapter 13, it's in the same conversation. Peter, he says he will deny him three times this very night. Yet despite their failure, despite Peter's denials, and and really we find out as the story progresses, the other disciples all scatter except for probably John. Despite their failure, they love Jesus And so he calls on them to obey his commands, namely to be his witnesses. So jump down to verses 25 and 26. Look at this. He's going to bring this up in a little bit. But verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Acts 1.8. 
Jesus is pleading with them. If you love me, you will keep my commandment to testify for me, to be my witnesses, to make disciples. And I will send the Holy Spirit who will work in power through you to do, to do greater things than these, to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. See, I believe that the reason that verse 15 is here is that this is a promise for these men. It is promised for these men specifically as they went out to establish the church. Paul will tell the Ephesians that the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so these men need to remember that if they love him, they will keep his commandments. His command to go out and build the church. Greater things than these. So when we establish that, that Jesus is speaking to these 11, we can also see that the second reason that this verse, verse 15, is included here is that this is for our own godliness. It's for the manifestation of our love. Again, John will explain this further in in 1 John 3, verse 16. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And then later in 1 John 4, verse 7 through 12, I, I keep coming back to this passage. I keep seeing how John is just explaining what Jesus has taught him. And in verses 7 through 12, 1 John 4, 7 to 12, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll love one another. If you love me, you will... Go and make disciples. But right there at the end of verse 12, 1 John 4, 12, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. God abides in us. John's talking about the Holy Spirit. But again, we we need to complete the thought before we get to the Holy Spirit. So, So what are the commandments there in verse 15 that Jesus is talking about? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Is Jesus talking about the Ten Commandments? Maybe. He's certainly not telling us to disregard them. We know that. But I think this is pointing back to verse 12. And then forward to the Great Commission. So what if we read verse 12 as a command of Christ? Because I believe it is. But these are also deep and rich promises of Christ. So think of it this way. Let me read 12 again. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. What if that's a command and a promise? Think of it like Christ, uh, when he restores Peter to ministry, 
after these three denials that he's talked about here. At the end of John's gospel, in John 21, just listen to verses 15 to 17. When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Feed my sheep, Peter. Our duty as disciples of Jesus Christ is to love the one who first loved us. And as a result, we will keep his commandments. Specifically, his command to do the work that he does. And greater things than these. Greater works than these. Because Jesus has promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is how God still works today. God, in his divine forbearance, his divine sovereignty, has chosen to use those who love him, who keep his commandments, to build his kingdom. And he does this through feeding and tending his sheep. These are the greater things that he has promised, building his church. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 to 22, Paul speaking of the the divide between the Gentiles and the Jews that are all now Christians. He says, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. He's talking here about building his church. And so yes... In general, if we love Christ, we will display our love for him by keeping his general commands. There are commands all over the scriptures that we are called to keep. Commands all over that Jesus specifically spoke. But specifically, specifically here, we will keep his commands to do the work that he does. And we will ask of the Father and he will send another helper. That's the final words of Ephesians 4.22, that passage I just read. We are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's where the promise of verse 16 and 17 comes in. So look at this promised helper. Let me read this again. Verses 16 and 17. In 15 he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Up until this point in John's gospel, when the apostle John tells us about the Holy Spirit, he writes about him in in almost important, but almost kind of vague, almost impersonal ways. 
But beginning here, Jesus begins to explain the the personal nature of the work of the Spirit. So, So here's what I mean by almost vague, almost impersonal. So John the Apostle quotes John the Baptist like this in John chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. John, John the Baptist, bore witness. So this is John the Baptist speaking. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Important work. Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit rested upon Jesus in his ministry. It's important and yet also kind of vague if we're honest about what that really means, right? We have to dig deeper as to what that means. But then in verses, or chapters 3, 4, and then again in chapter 6, John also emphasized, and you can look that up sometime, he emphasizes the Holy Spirit's role in regeneration, giving of new life, he emphasized in chapter 4 the, the Spirit's work in, in worship. And then in chapter 6, again, in giving life. Again, all incredibly important work, vital work to our eternal salvation. But as Jesus prepares his disciples for his departure here in chapter 14, and in order to kind of fully explain or more fully explain their union or com- communion with God, He now introduces them to the personal aspect of the third person of the Trinity, of the Godhead. And this is another promise that's wrapped up in a blessing. We could even say this is the great New Testament promise. This is, if the the greatest promise of God is Jesus Christ, the second one is like it, and it's the Holy Spirit. Just as the Messiah is the great promise of the Old Testament. So now the promise gets even better. And this promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit, it helps us to explain other promises. Promises like this, this from Deuteronomy, but it's mentioned several times throughout the Old Testament. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. I don't know how many times that is said in the Bible, that phrase. He will never leave you nor forsake you, but it's dozens of times. I will not leave you or forsake you. Or when Jesus says in Matthew 28, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Or when he says right here, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. This is the promised paraclete. Uh, Craig's not here today, but... Craig gives me a lot of credit when we pick out the songs that I've woven the songs into the message. He gives me too much credit sometimes. It's the Lord that orchestrates. And so today in the third verse of the song that we sang just before I came up here, you actually sang the word paraclete. Did you catch that? It's the word here for another helper. It's the Greek word there. It is the Holy Spirit, the promised paraclete. The ESV that I'm using here translates this as another helper, and that's appropriate, but there's actually at least three different ways that this is sometimes translated from Greek. So helper, advocate, or comforter. I want to explain each of these very briefly. So let's start with the advocate. 
1 John chapter 2, verse 1, uses it like this. John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. An advocate is, is like a defense attorney, someone who goes before the judge, someone who goes before the Lord on our behalf, reminding him, reminding us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And while that verse there specifically speaks of, of Jesus as our advocate, we can clearly see from, for example, Romans chapter 8, verse 26, that the Spirit is also very clearly involved in advocacy for us. Romans 8.26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes, advocates for us with groanings too deep for words. Not only is the Holy Spirit advocating for us, but Christ also is advocating for us. But also included in this concept is the idea that the Holy Spirit, the, the paraclete, will also be our, our master, our teacher, our exhorter, who, who both instructs and protects us. That's those verses 25 and 6. Look at these again. So jump down to John 14, 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is part of the advocacy work of the, of the Holy Spirit. But the second aspect of his office as paraclete is to be our comforter. So in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, uh, explains it like this. So the church, this is right after uh, Paul is saved drastically. Um, and he has now, because he has been saved, he has stopped persecuting the church. And Acts 9.31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. In the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Old Testament, the coming Messiah, the Christ who was to come, he is expected as the consolation of Israel. That's what the old man Simeon um, had been waiting for until he was finally able to hold the, the child Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 2. He uses that phrase, the consolation of Israel, the comfort of the, pe of the people. Now you are letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And even in this very chapter, we can see this, this role as comforting or ex uh, um, uh, consoling his own. Jesus opens the chapter with, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And he promises them here that even though he is leaving them, he will ask of the Father and he will send another helper. Helper. This is the third kind of use of this. This is what he uses here. Because they're going to do greater works. Works that will need to be wrapped up in prayer. We saw that in verse 13 and 14. And so Christ himself will ask of the Father and he will give another helper. And it is through prayer and the work of the Spirit that we're going to be able to do these greater works. Now there is so much more to the Holy Spirit. We're, 
We're really just getting an introduction here today. We're going to continue. um, We'll pick it up next week, Lord willing. But what I really want you to see and remember today is that this is a precious and very great promise. This is a precious and very great promise. This is a promise that looks small at first glance. It's another promise in a long line of promises. If you sit down and just read uh, chapter 14 or, or chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, if you just read this in one setting, there's promise after promise after promise after promise, and, and it would be easy to just kind of read through it and look at all these promises. But this is how the Father and the Son will be able to fulfill the promise to be with us forever. This is how God fulfills the promise, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is how God fulfills the promise. The Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. It is through his paraclete, the paraclete here, our helper, our advocate, our comforter. It is through the Holy Spirit that we are able to cast our burden onto the Lord because he will sustain us. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Can you, can you see here that in making these promises, and this promise specifically, and I, will, um, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Can you see here that we are to believe the promises of God? First Peter chapter 5, verse 7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Can you see that he cares for us? He cared for his disciples. He cares for his followers. He cares for his people. This is the promise of God. He will not leave us as orphans. This is the promise of God. He will not leave us alone. He will not forsake us because he first loved us. This is the promise of God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will be with you forever. That's what I want you to remember today. This is the promise of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that the Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, that he is with us forever. There is so much more that we can say here, and and we will. We will study as the weeks go on, but Lord, even just this promise, remind us of this truth each day. Remind us that you have promised to be with us forever. Remind us that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Even as we walk out of here today and go about our lives this week and we run into difficulty, we run into trouble, even as we struggle with our own sin, remind us of this promise that because you have first loved us, you have also said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Remind us of that, Lord, as we then respond in obedience because of the great love with which we have been loved. That we would love you because you first loved us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.